Let's begin reading in... Let's just go all the way back to, to verse 1 again and read through verse 11 to get us a, a, a rolling start. Verse 1, chapter 1, the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles from whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Again, let us bow in prayer and ask for help as we study. Father in heaven, we thank you for Sunday. We thank you for our Bibles. We thank you for time together with brothers and sisters in Christ at your feet to study your word, to understand it and obey it. Lord, make it live to us. May we be responsible to it. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. If I were to use the word witness, and we just read that word, we'll come across that word many times in our study, you would probably think of perhaps court proceedings or maybe in a courtroom of what is known as the witness stand. Um, maybe you would think of someone bearing witness or giving testimony. Maybe you would think of books or films you have seen where the entire story plot is wrapped around one eyewitness and whether or not beyond reasonable doubt investigators can convince a jury of the truth. Really, that's what a witness is key in finding. All court proceedings would say that's what we want is to find or arrive at the truth, what actually happened before we ever consider sentencing or what would be right. That is the same case in scriptures. Witnesses, eyewitnesses, and can we arrive at the truth as this is given to us? talked about that last week, how if we've got an ancient book open in our laps, on what basis do we believe its trustworthiness? We say that it's true based on what? 
And the scriptures themselves would base that on the eyewitness testimony of these apostles that Jesus left standing on the Mount of Olives as he ascended into heaven. So the statement, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that serves as the theme of the book. Where introduction may have been the first five verses, the actual table of contents is provided for you right there. Uh, Luke is going to be very, uh, very helpful at major turning points to notify us that we've, we've just left the focus of Jerusalem for Judea and then from Judea to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world as the final chapters have to do with Paul in Rome. But this is going to plot our course as we go. But this word witness is so prominent, 39 times you see this in the book of Acts. Everything else can be organized around it. So we'll make and draw a lot of focus and attention to this one word as we move through it week after week. However, what Jesus says when he uses this word witness, his last words, by the way, I don't know if you thought of it like that, uh, famous last words you might have heard anybody uh, reference to. That would not be this at all, though, I'd have to say. When you're thinking about famous last words, you're thinking of someone who said something and then died. Well, Jesus has already died and conquered the grave. He's risen. And you're going to see words in red uh, in chapter 9 with, with Paul on the road to Damascus. Chapter 10 with uh, Peter at House Cornelius. Jesus is, still has a speaking part throughout this book, but he's not physically with them anymore. This is the last thing he would say to them in the physical state. He'll have a heavenly existence uh, from that point on and speak to these men through dreams or visions. But the statement that's made, use of the word witnesses, locations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world, is actually in response to a question that was asked by these men standing there on the side of the hill. Now, we don't know if they knew that this was the last question that they would ask him while he was there with them. The reason why we don't know if they knew that it was the last question is because we don't know that they knew that this was the last few minutes they had. Luke doesn't tell us that. But you, you would have to wonder if they knew, is this the question they would have asked? Well, there have been more questions. I can't boil it down to just one. I have a whole sack full of questions to ask Jesus before he leaves. What would you have asked him? Now, that's kind of hard to think because you either have to put yourself as one of the disciples and you would have access to a lot more information than you have right now. Better, more fun way to think of it is what would it be like if you had a time machine and you could just plop down right there within a few minutes of his ascension and you get the opportunity to ask a question. I don't know, kind of like uh, those cartoons we watched when we were little in junior church. The Flying House. Do you ever see The Flying House? Any of you? What about Superbook? Okay, we got a few. Don't go look them up. All that old stuff looks kind of creepy when you look back on it over 30 years. Now I know you'll look it up, right? 
But the, the cartoons, the super book, there was a Bible. They'd read it, but as they read it, they'd be drawn into the actual events. And they'd walk around in their own clothes as guests uh, on the scene. Same way with the flying house. The flying house would just disappear and land somewhere in Bible land. But if that were you and you could ask, what would you say? Would you ask about the Trinity? Can you help me with that? How many of you would say, I've just got to know. Explain to me predestination. I would think that the same response would be given than was given to the disciples who said, are you going to restore the kingdom? I think so many of these things are not for us to know. There's mystery involved in it. It's better for us on this side of that wall to trust and believe by faith in this God who, of course, is on the other side of that wall and knows all and everything. But we do know what they asked. It's right here. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The word so is the first word in the translation there. It's one of Luke's favorite connectives. We're going to see the word so a lot. You you ever talk to anybody these days that uses so like between every sentence almost? Luke uses so a lot. It's the way he goes from one thought to the next thought. And reading through the first verses, the point had to do with him saying, wait, don't leave Jerusalem. And then you get to verse 6. So, when they had all come together, this is the question that they asked. Will you restore the kingdom? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So, if we were to analyze that statement, to kind of pull it apart into its separate pieces, the question had to do with time. It had to do with a kingdom. It had to do with a nation, which was Israel. And it had to do with the prospect of restoration. You can see all those right there. Will you now, that's time, restore, that's the uh, restoration, a kingdom, and then the kingdom to Israel. Now, the best way I know to go at this is one of two ways, a lengthy way would be to go back through the entire Old Testament and try to go at this from the perspective of, of what these men knew about time and a kingdom and a nation, the nation of Israel, and the prospect of restoring that kingdom to what it once was. You could study from Genesis to Malachi, and there would be pieces of information that would play into their question they asked. A lot of commentaries would say, oh, they've misunderstood him again. Um... They're clueless until the Holy Spirit comes. They're useless. I don't know about that. I think this is a very good question, given the way the Old Testament would have us look toward a kingdom. And from the perspective of Hebrews, this question makes a lot of sense. But from our perspective, uh, we're at somewhat of a disadvantage. If we know our Bibles well, we've grown up in church and we've paid attention. Some of these things are familiar. But some of these, I don't know if we would ever have the capacity to sit in their chair or stand in their shoes. Uh, as far as 
the question itself, if we're familiar with the prophets in the Old Testament, it's rather straightforward. It's not very complicated. About the time component. After hundreds of years, they now actually have standing in front of them a messianic candidate back from the dead. So up until that point, they'd been looking for this Messiah figure. And I think it's about dawning on these disciples after 40 days with Jesus talking about the kingdom that he's not just a messianic candidate. He is the Messiah. And he was dead, and now he's alive. So it's a, it's a reasonable question. Don't you think it's about time? We can relate to that, I suppose. Uh, I don't know that Americans would be any more tolerant of waiting around than Hebrews would. We probably have a worse time with it. We want everything right here and now. So that's the time. As far as the kingdom component... If you think back to Sunday school when you were a child learning about King David, King David's throne. Now Solomon would take the kingdom to its height as far as wealth and its, its boundaries, its magnificence. But all of the prophets would think back to David. All of the kings were judged like their father David or not. Either they obeyed like David or they disobeyed like David. Not David, but he seemed to be the standard. And this restoration here, or the kingdom that comes along with it, they're thinking of the kingdom that existed in the days of David, the man after God's own heart. That was lost as the kingdom was split, as the nation went into idolatry, and as the Spirit of God left them, but with the promise of the prophets that one day it would relive. So I think we can get that. As far as a national component, they're Israelites, Hebrews. Israel we know to be Jacob, uh, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, who after wrestling with the Lord one night's name was changed from Jacob to Israel. His children would be the 12 tribes of Israel. This is how you build a national ethnic group of we waved the American flag. Uh, it'd be a long time before uh, the actual Star of David in white with two blue bands on either side would be their flag that they would wave. But I don't know that you could find on the face of the planet a people group more proud of who they are. These are God's chosen people. So I think we can give them that if we're trying to think in their perspective, we can certainly appreciate a national heritage. We can certainly appreciate patriotism. Uh, these are things that are of value and worth to us. But the one thing that I think if we had any trouble at all with, it would be this idea of restoration. I don't think Americans have a reference point for that whatsoever. Because America's only a couple of hundred years old or so, but we've never been in a position where we've been destroyed and scattered and are trying our best to regroup and regather what once was reality but now is lost. Uh, our greatest generation uh, left this country to go fight overseas 
to make sure that the threat against our freedom and national identity uh, was not reality. But as far as knowing what it is like to be a loser, that's just un-American. We don't know how that would be. Um, We're at a disadvantage in that respect. There's only so much we can identify with a group who these days still use the phrase never again. So with that, well, okay, how, how are we supposed to relate to this group of people? 12 of them, actually, actually 11. Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Because we've never noticed anything ruined. I mean, Amos talks about in his prophecy the the booth or the throne of David on its side, rotting with weeds growing all up around it. Do any of you like to visit or investigate ruins? When, when, When you're a kid and you're at the beach and your parents say, hey, let's go to Brunswick Town, that's the worst thing a kid at the beach could ever hear. The second worst thing would be, let's go to Waccamaw Pottery. <laughs> no, let's go to the beach. Let's get in the water. Let's drive golf carts, putt-putt. But please don't let us die at Brunswick Town. Brunswick Town, those are ruins. Uh, and, and they've rebuilt some things, but it's history of things that have long passed. Uh, I don't... No, some of you may do this, but I can waste an hour or two on YouTube watching these guys with cameras go around abandoned things. Um, I've always wondered sometimes driving down 95, when will they have the abandoned video for south of the border? (laughs) It almost looks that way now. And then you can look at all the things that once was in some glory days where if you were headed south, you stopped. Everybody did that. Now almost nobody does that. But what is it that makes us interested in former days of glory? You watch the videos and you wonder, who built that? One of these last ones I watched had to do with a massive uh, mansion that the fellow who funded the Titanic was part of. It's now abandoned. They need like $55 million to restore it. But it's beautiful. And it's falling apart. And there's no one in there. And you wonder, what was it like to walk through that grand foyer that looks like something you'd see in our nation's capital? Or the men who worked on it with their hands. I mean, I watch a video and try to figure out how to do crown molding joints. These guys made them out of stone. And then would veneer these uh, domes up under the brick that you can see now that part of it's fallen But I don't know if America does that well yet because it's individuals. But to know that as a national people group, this was taken, it was destroyed. Lord, would you give us back what we had when your hand of providence was firmly on our shoulder? I think is what they're saying. It's the best way I know from here to try to describe what it might be like. And then we get our answer. He says in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
So for one thing, he didn't answer their question. It's kind of a shift into another thing. He's answering the time equation. As far as the time goes, that's for the Lord to know and for you to find out. Some of the most disappointing things I I, I watch Christians struggle with, myself included, is waiting for mysteries to be solved or answered. Questions, Lord, when, why, how? He knows, but he's not telling. So much of the whole Christian experience is tucked into those words. It is not for you to know. But how do we get through all that? How does that not just absolutely wreck us? Times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Oh, he's handled them. They're fixed by his authority. Nothing's lost. There's no maverick molecule in all the universe. Jesus' answer to his disciples' question is not a denial of any place for the nation of Israel. That's not what he's talking about. We can set that aside. But it does seem that God's plan for the future are different and or bigger than what these men have in mind. And by the way, all believers know that the Lord will come back, right? Because at the end of this passage, he says, uh, y'all are looking, he'll come back the same way. But he tells his men, his disciples, the apostles, not telling you when it's going to happen. Times and season. Maybe there's a little bit of a how tucked away in, 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 in the what. And as far as us taking that answer, <laughs> as Jesus said it, we routinely try to speculate, don't we? And that's big business for books. Um, unless it's that 88 reasons why the Lord will return in 1988. It hasn't been selling too many copies since, I don't know, 1989. Um, I wonder if you could find one on eBay. That might be fun to look at. He is coming back. The Father has fixed this by his own authority. They're not to be the subject of speculation. Verse 8, he gets down to business. This is where we were talking earlier. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And again, witnesses, as we described them earlier, are those who see something and are able to tell others about it. First-hand knowledge. That's what these men are to do. Uh, There are other places in Scripture. If you want to write down this reference, I'll read to you the passage. But 1 John 1, 1 and 2. This is the introduction to John's first epistle. 1 John 1, 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that's Jesus. The life, Jesus, was made manifest, made known, and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made known to us. Eyewitness. 2 Peter 1.16. I like the way Peter puts this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
And the New Testament is replete with these testimonies. This was the primary reason for the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower these men for the purpose of getting their witness, their eyewitness account of what Jesus said and did out to the nations. And then in Acts chapter 17, this is kind of a a sneak peek. And uh, Paul's mode of operation was to go into a town, start teaching, which would instigate a fight. And then once everybody's fighting, he'll try to flee with his life, go to another town, start a fight, (laughs) flee from that town. But in Acts 17, and when they could not find them, that's Paul and his associates, even in the midst of an all-points bulletin, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Those were the people he was last with. And here's what they said. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Turned the world upside down with what? Some manifesto, some propaganda, a bunch of loud speeches in front of big flags and hordes of military. No, they've turned the world upside down with a simple eyewitness account that a Jewish carpenter was dead but is now alive. And why is that important to them? They were there. They were witnesses. They've upset the world with these things. Then verse 9, And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud. And on Wednesday night, studying the temple and the tabernacle and the fire and the cloud, a cloud, very symbolic. Final dramatic moment in which a powerful motivation for carrying on his work, he left these men. Look at verse 10. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men in white robes, And they ask, why are you standing and looking into heaven? He's coming back the same way. When I was a student at Liberty, not Liberty, that was later. This was at Word of Life in Florida, Hudson, Florida. Um, Back then, the, the space shuttles were still being used. And... In the middle of the campus there, Word of Life, I I don't know if it's still there or not, but it's a big water slide. And really all they did was just grade dirt up in a big big slant. And that's where the stairs were, and then you'd ride the water slide. But it gave you an amazing view over the tops of the trees. Now, we didn't have any televisions. Uh, None of us had cell phones either I wouldn't buy that until I got to Lynchburg with the uh, aluminum case looks like the police officer's ticket machine and you got to write real hard on the white page down through the yellow page all the way to the red page and then you take a check and pay for your cell phone every month way back but went up those steps and we'd have somebody who had television tell us when and we'd watch that space shuttle from the other side of that sandbar known as Florida, you, you could see it. And you know how long we would stand there and stare at it? Same as how long you'd stand there and stare at it until you couldn't see it anymore, right? You just keep watching. No, I can still see it. I can't see it. I can see it. But you watch it until it's gone. 
kind of like uh, at the beach when we'll light one of those lantern things and let it take off and it looks like some kind of weird star until it burns out and falls into the ocean and biodegrades. You got to get the right ones. Um, would it be any different if you spent three years with this guy or if you're 2,000 years removed? If something's going to lift off the planet into the sky without the assistance of rocket fuel or a wax candle, you're going to watch. So they watch. But it looks like two guys here. This is old hat. What are you doing? Why are you watching? Uh, This really is not that big a deal. There's much better things to come. And they tell them that he's coming back. Their message was twofold. The Jesus that they had known now had a heavenly existence. He's left the earth and resides in heaven. Also, this Jesus that they had known would return specifically the same way they saw him go into heaven. All right, what do we do with this? I think that's a reasonable attempt at understanding this passage and what it means as far as uh, the latter portion of the introduction to the book of Acts, chapters 1, 6 through 11. Well, let's go back for a few moments to two places in this. We know what was. Let's, let's see what this says to what is. Uh, this would be taking the wasness of Scripture and trying to apply it to the isness of the here and now, right? Back to the question that the disciples asked Jesus. Let's try one more time to understand what they asked and how he responded. What they ask is when you will restore, give us back what was so wondrously your gift of presence, power, what we remember as the, the best time ever. Will you give it back to us as you promised you would? That was their question. His answer, you will be my witnesses. And then he gives geographic locations. Jerusalem. Now, I'm sure when he said Jerusalem, they thought, absolutely. That's where we are. It's the capital. The city of David's right here. Temple Mount. Where else would it be? But then he says, Judea. Well, okay. But those guys are a little different than we are. But work it out. Samaria. A big problem. That's where the Samaritans come from. Don't get along with them at all. And then to the uttermost parts of the world. That's places they haven't even heard about yet. Places like, I don't know, Timbuktu, Fuqua Varina. They didn't know that this part of the world existed at that point. We live at the extremities of the uttermost parts of the world. The secret of Jesus is out. We know about Jesus Christ in Fuqua Varina and many other places. And as the world goes out, God's church comes in and it's even bigger. But what he's telling them, you know as they hear it, it has to be not exactly what they thought or hoped as far as their hopes for the kingdom. This was not their hopes for the kingdom. Their plan was not wrong. It was not 
out of whack with the prophets who had pointed them in that direction. Jesus did not rebuke them for what they said. He just redirected them in another way. So if the disciples' problem, if there's a problem with their plan for the kingdom, it was this. It was too small. Now, if you try to convince a Jew that there's something bigger than David's throne, they might look at you like you never saw David's throne. But what Jesus is saying, I'm not worried about only Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria. I'm going worldwide. And not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. Uh, There's this passage in Revelation Revelation 7, 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Their problem wasn't, their plan wasn't a bad plan. It was just pitifully too small. Now, for taking wasness into isness, I hope you have hopes for the kingdom of heaven. I hope that you think of it as something in eternity with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but I hope that you think of it as being um, in process now that we have the Holy Spirit and we're meeting here in churches. But would you say that we're probably much more at risk of having our hopes for the kingdom being much too small than much too large? Is it even possible that in this brain we could think of something bigger than God's plans for his kingdom? Ours are much too small. And where we could pick on these Hebrews, Lord, uh, restore the kingdom to, to, to Jerusalem. And save people that are like us. And save people that uh, we would like to know, though we haven't met yet. But that, that's what we want. Give us back what we had when we liked what we had. We could pick on America the same way. Um, Lord, would you please use your Old Testament prophecies to pump life back into uh, the conservative political movement? And give us back America like we liked it, where people voted like we voted. How small is that compared to what Jesus would love to do with America, where he'd love to save you no matter how you vote. And if you're wrong, he'll correct it. And if you've sinned, and that's all of us, he'll forgive them. It's just they're in on the same terms that any of the rest of us get in on. You believe by faith that these things are true, that he died for all of us. Is America in violation of having hopes for the kingdom as being way too small? Absolutely, yes. We work it down closer to the skin, right? What about Wake Chapel? Her hopes for the kingdom of God. Are they big enough? I don't know if that's the way to ask the question because it'll always be too small if it's our definition. But are we open to the Lord doing what he wants to do as long as we're faithful in doing the very simplistic things that he lines out for us in the scriptures? 
But if I've been in any church, it's not just this one, it's all of them. There's a certain part of a church that's not unlike our own heart. Lord, bless my church, but keep my church the way I like it. Bring people in, but ones that are like me. Bring people in that'll be helpful to the ministry and serve and give and volunteer. And don't let it get too big, unless, of course, we still got plenty of seats to sit where we want to. I could keep going and going until I stepped on some toe of everyone in here. This is us. That's why we think that's, that's how we are. Our hopes for God's business is always pitifully smaller than his plans for us. His is wide open. I mean, you can't be more bought in than to spread your arms and die for the sins of others. No one's more invested than Jesus and the Father who gave him away. So when these men are sitting here thinking, we can't fault them for it. They're probably doing a better job than we would given the circumstances. They've been with Jesus for three years. But if there's a problem, it's because it's too small. And aren't we glad it was too small? How much would you say you have in common with Galileans that lived 2,000 years ago? I might like their food. But I don't think I'd get their jokes. I don't think I'd like the way they wash their clothes. I'd rather have my washing machines, my car rather than a camel. I'm glad for the uttermost part of the world part of this verse in the book of Acts. I'm glad that Jesus loved me when I'm not so sure that some of his own chosen people wouldn't have or got around to it. I'm glad that most of the critical part is on God and his providence, his Holy Spirit. And he does all his work through us. All right. Let's go back to what Jesus told them they were supposed to do. So we went back to the question that the disciples asked. And we learned that our hopes for the kingdom are too small, same as it was with the disciples. But as far as what Jesus told them to do, what these men were supposed to do, and it's a little different because we're not apostles. We didn't spend three years with Jesus, but some of this is the same. They were to tell others what they heard him say and what they had seen him do. They were to be witnesses. So the question we would ask ourselves if we're, we're trying to apply this to our lives, how are we to do this? How is this church to do this? How is our country supposed to do this? Now, I can vote, but I, I can't really control much of our government. I can be a good citizen. I like the way can't remember the man's name but the question was put in a paper what's wrong with the world he wrote back I am and signed his name so I would think if if America has a problem it's it'd be me that's where I'll start before I get but so critical of the world around me I'll make sure I have my stuff in order but as far as this goes scripturally speaking in the context of a church we do have more influence in that body. We do have gifts we can bring to bear. Um, and as far as carrying out the gospel mandate of the scriptures, 
if I had one thing that I thought would be more helpful to keep us on track, keep it simple and keep it accessible. We're not here to feed the world, though we feed the world. The New Testament doesn't tell us that the church is here to be salt and light in a moral aspect, though we do. Uh, There's nothing in the New Testament that even talks about age-segregated ministry for children or providing a safe place for kids to enjoy sports. Though we, we do those things. What we are here to do, that only we can do, that if nobody else on the planet does them, they won't get done because they can't do it. That is to tell the world about this man named Jesus who revealed himself to us through the work of his apostles. It's the same thing. It's witnessing. And if we don't do it, no one will. They don't know that Jesus if they're not believers and they don't care about him. And when we're all selfish humans who look for ourselves first and without the Holy Spirit to hold that back enough, long enough for us to be of help to anyone else, I think we ought to just simplify and make it accessible, make it clear so that anybody can get it. Down on the lower bottom shelf, And then just keep doing it over and over and over again. I'll teach my kids how to teach their kids who will teach their kids along with your kids. We'll just keep preaching the same truth and bearing the same witness. The way we go about it might look a little different here and there, but we're a piece of the puzzle of God's intentions to go from Fuquay, Verena uh, to Anger. And then maybe to, I don't know, Atlanta, and then the other most parts of the world. I'm trying to think of close, a uh, little far, a lot far, really far. But that's what we do. How are we to do this? Any way we see fit that's faithful to the message. We can't be Jesus for anyone, that's sure. But we can tell them about Jesus, about reliable witnesses who saw him live and saw him die and how he is their only hope. So God's plans for the kingdom, which includes me and you, if we are children of God, is not small like we might think it, but more wonderful than you can ever imagine. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Lord, these are big concepts in few words. The idea of a witness and how you took from a group of people, a nation who lived the way you told them to, whose culture was largely what you gave them. Imperfect, of course. But through that structure, your death on the cross and the rending of the veil of the temple, So much of that is left behind. Sins being paid for. Forgiveness is on the table. The message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus is very simple. You died in our place. Lord, may we 
hold that as the most important resource. And instead of advocates or fans, Lord, may we approach others on this planet as witnesses. This isn't something we've heard. This is something we've seen. And Lord, may you choose to make a difference in the lives of others by the faithful ministry we make available to you through our living sacrifice. Lord, thank you for our time in this building today. On your day, may we be an encouragement to one another. Lord, may we help one another, build one another up, love one another. But may you use us for your kingdom and glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.